We are back. The topic of mischief and genetics was something we returned to on several occasions. You know, that, that seed bank open the island of Svalbard is an effort to preserve for posterity valuable genetic materials. The Russian scientist Nikolai Vavilov was the man who scoured the world for such materials. His story was told by author Peter Pringle in his book, The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov. Turns out Vavilov's ideas, however visionary, fell afoul of political correctness as seen in the old USSR. Peter, we read in a note from today's headlines, scientists are attempting to put some different strains of seeds up into cold storage near the Arctic Circle. And can you explain how, uh, how this news from today's headlines, you know, the effort to retain valuable genetic material for future generations, is really a direct extension of the research started by Vavilov in the Soviet Union back around World War I? Well, we have to go back to the 1920s, I guess. And Vavilov is a botanist, and he's, he has a dream. He believes that if he uh, goes to the centers of origin, as he calls them, of, the, of crop plants, of wheat in the Middle East and corn in Mexico and potatoes in Peru, and he looks for wild varieties that the uh, first farmers missed when they were started to cultivate these crops, then he'd be able to bring back these genetic varieties, which he would breed into the current plants that we have, and, uh, they w- and to make them better. Uh, to make them survive frost, to make them to survive drought and and uh, and floods, and uh, so he built the first, the world's first uh, enormous, gigantic seed bank in Leningrad in 1920s, and that basically is the forerunner of what you have in Norway now, uh, known as the Doomsday Vault of uh, crop seeds. I think uh, in these days it's almost second nature to contemplate that we need these wild resources, but when Vavilov thought of this back then, this was quite revolutionary. It was totally revolutionary. In fact, plant breeders felt that they had enough genetic information, they had enough varieties, and they would just breed these and keep them going. And in fact, uh, you know, in those days, certainly America was taking off as the, as the great um, uh, breadbasket of the world. Uh, Russia was not very far behind until the revolution. Other countries, Australia, were beginning, and uh, they were producing um, huge amounts of food. So they weren't lacking food. They weren't thinking in terms of biodiversity, that sort of frightening term to some. But Vavilov is probably and should be called the father of biodiversity. He was the one who went out, searched all over the globe in, in five continents, and brought back these seeds. This is another program we suggest very highly that you listen to, if nothing else, for the tale of how a stupid but politically acceptable man named Trofim Lysenko came to rule Soviet genetics despite being a scientific fraud. On a rather more amusing note, we enjoyed a chat with author Kurt Ebsmeyer about his book Flotsometrics, which took a look at things floating about on the high seas. We talked about the, the gyres in the ocean, and at, at the center of them uh, these days, we find these immense patches of garbage, mostly plastic, and apparently you've also coined the term we're now using for these garbage patches. Uh, the scope of this problem is just coming into focus. Can you talk about the, the immensity of these things? They're huge. I mean, the one that... Uh we started noticing them when we were doing the uh, drift of the ducks. Um, the ducks would escape the gyre up in uh, the northern gyre, or the Aleut gyre between uh, Japan and Alaska, and they would escape and head south. And a lot of them 
wound up going round and round in a in, cir- in a giant circle between uh, Hawaii and uh, California, and uh, measured about 500 miles across. Looked to be several times the size of Texas, and uh, at, for the beachcomber alert, I kept getting uh, letters from mariners saying, "Yeah, I uh, sailed through the area, and I, when the wave would set down, I'd see glass balls, and I'd see refrigerators and tires and stuff." And, and, and slowly, I began to see that the Oscar is the computer model was um, actually showing this. And I said, I coined the term, I said, Jim, uh, we were kind of, maybe had a beer or so, and, and uh, I said, it looks like a garbage patch to me, and uh, <laughs> the term caught on. Well, you know, when we announced that you'd be on the show a few weeks ago, a caller, Jake, asked me to ask you a question, which I think I will do, uh, which was, why can't we send these whaling boats that people don't like to be killing whales out to haul in some of that trash from the garbage patches? Excellent idea. I've had the same thought about why can't we use the uh, the navies around the world to, when they're not fighting a hot war, go out and you know collect it. Basically, most of it is is small. Uh, it's um, you need a cheesecloth to kind of you have to tow a very fine mesh net to catch it because um, plastic doesn't doesn't ever degrade it just it just fractions into ever smaller pieces and when it gets down to the size of table salt it starts looking like plankton and it gets into the food chain so that's the size we're dealing with and uh, I thought well gee if, if the navies of the world went out into the garbage patches of the world and towed cheesecloth um, we could clean this up but, uh, so uh, Jake put his finger on it <laughs> Yeah, you uh, you know the thing in your book that just scared the hell out of me, frankly, was talking about those little plastic bits getting smaller and smaller, and actually acting like little sponges for toxins, which then get uh, into the food chain. Uh, what can we do about this? Use few, use less plastic? Yeah, that's a very good point. The uh, chemicals, the nasty chemicals in the ocean, adsorb and kind of go right onto the surface of the plastic, and so when when the food chain absorbs these little doses of kind of little bombs of plastic uh, and toxins. It's They're really nasty. and uh, I'm afraid we can't really, there's no effective way of cleaning it up, I'm afraid, but the most effective thing we can do is to shift from um, petroleum-based plastic, that is plastic made from crude oil, which is probably 99% of it now, to uh, a green plastic, which is made from corns and, you know, uh, a kind of plastic that will dissolve back to its constituent elements like right. hydrogen and that kind of thing. So we have the technology. We just have to find the will to use it. Well, on average, we've done more science than technology on this program, I think. But uh, NASA's moon landings were a perennial favorite. And author Jay Barbary weighed in on that subject with his biography of astronaut Neil Armstrong. Well, I want to talk a bit about those Edwards Air Force uh, days. Of course, you, you make passing mention of the fact that this whole milieu was what uh, Tom Wolfe would later write about in, in The Right Stuff, a, a celebrated book and later a movie. And, and I gather that Neil Armstrong didn't really think that that book maybe got it quite right. And how, how do you think he would have described those times at Edwards? Well, first of all, uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, who is a great writer, and it's not up to me to put him down, but Neil is right. Neil thought it was a great yarn, made a great movie, but it was terrible history. Hmm. That's his exact quote. 
He says it was the wrong people at the wrong time. In other words, he had people doing stuff in this book that they were supposed to be doing in the 60s, and they didn't do it in the 60s. They did it in the 50s and some in the 40s. Like Chuck Yeager broke, broke the sound barrier in 1947 on October the 14th. Well, they had Chuck Yeager in there flying with these same guys that were flying a decade later and all. And uh, so anyway, Deal just thought it was terrible because they didn't get too much of it right. He was a stickler for being of accuracy. He was a person you didn't want to be around when you're trying to do something because he was just so slow and so precise at it, it would take forever and he'd get on your nerves. <laughs> and so a lot of people didn't like that. And uh, he told me after the uh, rights, uh, after First Man came out, his uh, biography, by Jim Hansen, who was a NASA historian. He's also a professor at Auburn University now. He had he just looked at me and he says, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with that book. I just gave it all to Jim, and Jim wrote it. <laughs> what he meant was he didn't try to help Jim write it. I'm sure that was the greatest gift he could give to Jim because he would have probably drove him nuts <laughs> while Jim was trying to write the book. You, you didn't you didn't get into it too much, but I I gather it really is true that uh, methodical though he may have been back when he was a young man, Neil Armstrong really did get a pilot's license before he got a license to drive a car. He oh sure he did. He see you couldn't get a pilot's license until you were sixteen. You could get a student permit when you were fourteen, which he had it. It was within a day or so of Neil's sixteenth birthday that he got his. Uh, uh, pilot's license, and then he finally got around to getting a driver's license, you know. <laughs> now, it just so happens that Mr. Mullen and I once had breakfast with General Chuck Yeager. It was one fine morning many years back, and he told us a tale about flying with Neil Armstrong that was pretty hilarious. But you know what? We're just going to save that one for a future show. Aww. Now, one science author we could not get enough of was Mary Roach. She spoke with us on no less than four occasions. Her book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, was really quite a blast. We talked with her about how science finally got around to studying sex. You note that as recently as the 1960s, physiology text basically skipped over the topic of sex, and one can certainly uh, see why that was, uh, you know, something people didn't want to get into when you mentioned this case of Vern Bullough, I guess. He landed on the FBI's list of dangerous Americans for subversive activities, evidently for publishing scholarly papers on prostitution and working to decriminalize oral sex. What shocks me, this is in the 1970s. It's kind of astounding. Even if someone's doing a uh, work in the area of venereal disease, there was a, the very first person to publish a paper on venereal disease in, a, in um, a gynecological publication was booed off the stage. I mean, that's not, that's not helping anybody. The problem is that anytime you do a paper or a research project in the area of sex, if you just if you just try to describe it to someone, like, well, we've got some women coming in and they'll be observing pornography <laughs> and we'll be wiring them up to a machine. Well, it sounds completely funky. You know, you just, it, but then when you understand why it's being done and what the goal of the research is, and the fact that there's really no other way to do it, you begin to understand that it's just their job. Well, you, you, you mentioned Alfred Kinsey a, a second ago. He's a rather famous name in the study of sex. I was quite uh, surprised to learn from your book that he was not merely this questionnaire type of researcher I thought he was. Uh, you mentioned the movie camera. Apparently, he really got into his work quite heavily. Yeah, people associate him with those kind of encyclopedic surveys of sexual behavior, you know, sitting down one-on-one -on -one and asking people about 
their sexual practices. And while that is his best known work, he also got interested in the physiology. He didn't, because it was the 40s, uh, late 40s, he didn't really, uh, he didn't really feel he could have a laboratory uh, on campus and, and, and do physiological work in that setting. He did it up in his attic, uh, sort of in secret. <laughs> And, of course, that makes it look even worse. Got, What's going on up there? We're hearing all kinds of weird things. So, but, yeah, he was uh, he was up there taking notes and filming, and uh, it was quite a rollicking time, apparently. And I would note that we had about as much fun when she came back to talk with us about her book, Packing for Mars. As we close, I wanted to bring up my, um, my favorite single anecdote from the many you have in the book. After NASA elected early on to send chimps on their first space flights, this, this sort of bruised the egos of a lot of the astronaut corps. And so some years later, they elected to honor the grave of Ham, the first chimp that was sent up. Someone had the bad judgment to invite Alan Shepard to attend the <laughs> ceremony. And he apparently still had some ill will toward his rival primate in space. I don't know what the, the publicity people were thinking, but because the, the, yes, uh, there, there's this great anecdote about how on the trailer that took the, both the, the chimps and the astronauts, Mercury astronauts, out to the gantry, there was a traje- you know they plotted Alan Shepard's trajectory, and then someone from the veterinary department plotted Ham's higher and farther because Ham actually went higher and farther than <laughs> Alan Shepard did. He said they ripped that card down right away. <laughs> so yeah, they, uh, they they didn't mingle much. The uh, the Ham group and the Alan Shepard and the Mercury 7. I also want to note, too, to please note, you vindicated the first chimp in orbit, Enos. He apparently got a bad rap from some space historians. Yeah, Enos had a nickname, Enos the Penis. And there was a rumor that started, one of the space writers, popular uh, chroniclers of space, said that this was because Enos had a, a habit of touching himself and that there was this all that, and then it kind of went from there. People were talking about how they devised the balloon catheter to prevent him from touching himself. There were, there was a story about him pulling his diaper down at a press conference and then the light bulbs come off. Anyway, um, I called Venus's handlers, uh, who are in their seven, the two of them, they're in their seventies now. The guy said, he said, Enos, his, that, his nickname had nothing to do with that. Who told you this? We called him Enos the Penis because he was such a son of a gun. He was a, I won't use the slang. Right. But anyway, he, um, he said, no, that's not true. Who told you that? But I tracked it back to four different books and it would change slightly in each telling. And, you know, cause I, I had a chapter, I have a chapter on sex in space and I thought, oh, here we go. Well, here's the first orgasm in space. It was Enos. And I was all excited. But yeah, in fact, poor Enos. I cleared his name. And finally, somewhere along the way, we learned about a book with Parallax in the title. Astronomer Alan Hirschfield had written a book titled Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos. We knew we had to try to get him on, and and what do you know, we succeeded. Dr. Hirschfield weighed in on the use of different positions to find out the actual distances to the stars. Well, the closer ones, anyway. But by the 1800s, it was realized by every astronomer that what they were looking for, these wobbles, were extremely, extremely tiny. And the only way to detect them would be very, very careful observations with very high-quality instruments, very stable instruments that didn't wobble, that had no optical defects or anything of that, that sort. It was the, the first instance of real precision measurement in astronomy. And this was something that Friedrich Bessel in Germany was very, very good at. He was extremely patient and meticulous as an observer. 
So he did observe this star, 61 Cygni, over the course of a year, through the very frigid German winter also. And uh, in the course then of that year's worth of observations, he, he basically <clears throat> uh, plotted up a, a graph of where this star was located in the sky, and it did shift back and forth in a one-year period, reflecting the motion of the Earth. Everything fit, everything was right. And so that 61 Cygni became the first star to have a measured parallax. And when he turned that into uh, a distance, it came out to be about 10 light years away. This dropped a lot of jaws, and they realized how far that really was. Well, as I said, astronomers by that time had a sense that they were dealing with a really difficult problem because, in fact, the stars must be extremely far away. So they weren't taken completely by surprise, but nevertheless, it was really a stunning number. I mean, 10 light years, each light year is about 6 trillion miles. So we're talking an enormous distance to one of the nearest stars to our solar system. Now, this is not some far-flung star. This is one of our neighbors, basically, being approximately 60 trillion miles away. This is why, by the way, this is why astronomers were not able to detect these subtle parallax wobbles because they were just so, so tiny, they were extremely difficult to detect. I, I should note that uh, in the 60 years after the first three stars uh, had their distances determined using parallax. There was still less than 100. It's a method that really can only be applied to the closest stars, but we now have some satellites up. You mentioned at the close of your book that's going to allow us to get some really good measurements on, on some of these closer stars. Yeah, the breakthrough came in the uh, early and mid-1990s with a satellite called Hipparchos, which measured the, the parallaxes, therefore the distances, to several million stars. So uh, we now have accurate distances to a large number of stars out to about 500 light years or so. But to put that into perspective, it's 30,000 light years from us in the solar system to this, just the center of our galaxy. So even with millions of stars distances measured, we still have sort of an accurate map of just our local region of the galaxy, it will be up to the next generation of parallax measuring uh, spacecraft to basically map out accurately uh, our entire galaxy. Let me note in closing the one thing you don't have to go 60 trillion miles to locate would be Radio Parallax. To find us, all you got to do is type in radioparallax.com, and we certainly advise you to do so because we got a lot more found on that site, then we could throw together for one show on science. We need to pause for a moment to uh, recognize, sadly, the death of a great American, Daniel Ellsberg. Now the truth is you can't really have a minute of silence when you're on radio, so we're not going to do that. But I would say that a momentary pause with a little bit of background music perhaps is in order.
All right, let's talk about Daniel Ellsberg. The Guardian notes that he has died at age 92 as the most important whistleblower of our times. His 1971 leaking of what became known as the Pentagon Papers showed conclusively that virtually everything the American public had been told by its leaders about the Vietnam War, from its origins to its current conduct, was false. The Guardian notes the leak did not end the war. Ellsberg regretted not having come forward years earlier. He spent the rest of his life as a peace activist. He encouraged others on the inside to reveal government malfeasance and supported those who did, including Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. But it must be noted that his leaks did result in a landmark decision in favor of freedom of the press and rather ironically led to the downfall, at least indirectly, at least in part, of U.S. President Richard Nixon. It was not unreasonable to set Ellsberg's leak alongside President John F. Kennedy's assassination as the ground zero of today's distrust in politics. And I'm quoting The Guardian directly in that. His obit goes on. Before working on the Pentagon Papers, officially a study titled A History of Decision-Making in Vietnam, 1945-68, commissioned from the Rand Corporation Research Organization by... Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, Ellsberg had spent two years at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon advising General Edward Lansdale's pacification program, which is itself quite a story I, I need to explain at greater length at some point. Notes the Guardian as he sifted through the material gathered for the report, including evaluations which deemed the war unwinnable, he realized the enormity of the political fraud. He began copying the documents with the help of former Rand colleague Anthony Russo, and in 1971, as the U.S. extended the war with bombings of Laos and Cambodia, he resolved to make them public. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, William Fulbright, turned him down. So did the Washington Post's editor, Ben Bradley, and owner, Catherine Graham. Graham, after all, was close to the Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who had known Ellsberg at Harvard. He advised her that Ellsberg was, quote, unbalanced and emotionally unstable, unquote. The 2017 film The Post loosely covers these events. We would strongly recommend you listen to our review of that film conducted with James DiEugenio, which I think will reveal just how loosely that film did cover events. The Guardian notes that Neil Sheehan of the New York Times was a reporter that Ellsberg admired while he was in Vietnam. Sheehan convinced the New York Times to take the papers, the first installment of which revealed that the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the Casas Belli, which launched full-scale U.S. participation in the conflict, had been bogus. The Nixon administration obtained an injunction prohibiting further publication. The Supreme Court's overturning of that injunction dismissed the idea of prior restraint and remains a cornerstone of U.S. journalistic freedom. The leakers themselves, however, were not protected. Ellsberg was hidden by anti-war activists while Mike Gravel, U.S. Senator from Alaska, entered most of the leaked Pentagon papers into the congressional record, leaving the Washington Post to play catch-up. Nixon, furious at the leaks, created the so-called Plumbers Unit, a covert specialty operation, to discover if Ellsberg had further material that might affect him directly and lead to discredit him. Nixon, we mean. When the plumber's bungled break-in at the Watergate offices revealed an earlier burglary of Ellsberg's psychiatric office, 
The ensuing chain of scandal and cover-up eventually forced Nixon's resignation to avoid impeachment. Although I would pause at this point to say we need in a future installment of this program to delve into that a little more deeply, perhaps with author Jim Hogan, whose book Secret Agenda is a rather milestone piece on Watergate. Continuing with The Guardian's obituary, Ellsberg grew up the very definition of a true believer in America. Both his father, Harry, a structural engineer, and mother, Adele, were the children of Russian Jewish immigrants who had converted to Christian science. When Daniel, born in Chicago, was six, his father found work in Detroit building Ford's massive Willow Run factory. Daniel won a scholarship to the elite Cranbrook School in the Detroit suburbs. A talented pianist, he practiced for four to six hours a day to fulfill his mother's dream. But in 1946, rushing to Denver for a family gathering, his father fell asleep while driving and rammed into a bridge. His mother and younger sister Gloria both died. Daniel recovered from his severe injuries, but ceased playing the piano. He won a scholarship to Harvard where he studied economics, edited his college paper, and finished third in his class. Upon graduation, he married a Radcliffe student, Carol Cummings, whose father was a colonel in the Marine Corps. And he took up a Wilson Fellowship for a year's study at King's College, Cambridge. In 1954, accepted as a Harvard Junior Fellow to pursue his doctorate, he instead joined the U.S. Marine Corps, becoming a rare first lieutenant given command of a full company. Ellsberg returned to Harvard in 1956. His dissertation, Risk, Ambiguity, and Decision, contained what is now known as the Ellsberg Paradox, which delineated how the preference for well-defined probabilities over the uncertainty of ambiguity influences decision-making, especially as it reinforces preconceived ideas. It became an important part of game theory. Ellsberg went to work for RAND on the development of defense command and control research, most of which was devoted to spitballing fail-safe slash Dr. Strangelove scenarios as detailed in his 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. In 1964, he went to the Department of Defense as a special assistant for internal security to McNamara's number two man, John McNaughton, before moving to the State Department and Vietnam. In 1967, he rejoined Rand to work on McNamara's project, but was increasingly tormented by Kissinger and Nixon's Vietnam policy. They believed that if the U.S. opened relations with China, and entered into a detente with Russia, those countries would pressure North Vietnam to come to the table while the U.S. bombed incessantly. Let's just note editorially that that didn't pan out. Ellsberg began joining anti-war campaigners, including the poet Gary Snyder, and was inspired by Randy Keller, a draft resistor who spoke of welcoming imprisonment for his beliefs. Ellsberg left Washington for MIT's Center for International Studies a year before leaking the papers. His first marriage ended in divorce in 1970. In June 1971, he surrendered himself to the U.S. attorney in Boston, asked on the courthouse steps how he felt about going to prison. Ellsberg replied, wouldn't you go to prison to end this war? He became the first civilian charged with violating the 1917 Espionage Act and faced a maximum sentence of 115 years. The district court judge, William Byrne, ruled irrelevant his public interest defense. The documents were illegally classified and so it has been for every whistleblower since. But Byrne eventually dismissed the case because of government malfeasance, including the plumber's break-in, as well as Nixon's wiretapping of Kissinger's aide, 
Morton Halperin, and John Ehrlichman's offering Byrne, the directorship of the FBI. In 1974, Ellsberg's interviews were a major part of the Oscar-winning Vietnam documentary Hearts and Minds. In 1978, he was awarded the Gandhi Prize by Promoting Enduring Peace. In the next 40 years, he was arrested around 50 times at anti-war protests. Ellsberg likened the weapons of mass destruction excuse for invading Iraq in 2003 to the Gulf of Tonkin affair, and over the years supported leakers who revealed government deceptions, including Snowden, Manning, and reality winner who was sentenced to five years in prison for leaking a single page from an in-house National Security Agency magazine showing the NSA had concluded Russia interfered in U.S. elections while the government was maintaining they had not. I would note with grave sadness that Daniel Ellsberg told me not once but twice that he would appear on this program if I would get a hold of him at the right time because, as always, he was busy at the moment. I confess to not doing the due diligence that I should have in this matter something I will forever be sorry for. I bought both his recent books, The Doomsday Machine and Secrets, read them avidly, and wanted to speak with him about them, but failed to do so. My apologies to all of you for that. Today's program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and I do want to note in closing that we do expect to speak with Daniel Ellsberg's very good friend, Peter Dale Scott, in the near future. And believe you me, we will talk a bit about Dan Ellsberg.